Well, everything had changed in a moment for me. It was, it was June 26, 2016. It was about 110 degrees outside, or at least felt like it. And, my, and myself, I stood there dressed in a suit, and Pastor Bruce stood right beside me. And my beautiful, soon-to-be wife started to walk down the aisle. For some reason, we decided to get married outside. We did not know it would be so hot. And we sat there, and Bruce had to, I kind of gave him the nod, hurry this thing up, because it was so hot outside. We said our vows, we looked at each other, and like many of you, in that moment, everything seemed to change. I kissed her for a very long time. We started to walk down the aisle. I stopped, I picked her up, and we bolted down the aisle together. Everything changed at that moment moment. I was a senior in high school. We were getting ready to play a regional semifinal game. We were playing the defending state champs, Berlin Highland, the Amish boys. We felt pretty confident as a small Mogador school, and I felt pretty confident. We had come out of the gate, and someone in this room was there. We came out of the gate. We were actually up in the first two minutes, 10 to 2. I had made two three-pointers. I mean, we were confident. They called a timeout to get their troops together. We had come into our huddle. We started talking to each other, and we thought, hey, we got this. Well, we lost the game by 40, I believe. I had six points and nine turnovers, and they just annihilated us. Dylan Kaufman, still to this day, is in my head with 40 points and three dunks over top of me. Everything changed in a moment. And for a lot of you, there are things that change in your life. Some of you, depending on your age, you like change. Maybe it's fun, it's, it's, it's exhilarating, you enjoy change. Maybe for some of you, you hate it. Change is from the devil himself. You don't like change, you like routine, you are type A, you are a one on the Enneagram, you like your things in order. And the last thing you want is change. Let's just have some participation. Someone just gave me a, one of these. Raise your hand if you like change. Say, I, I like it. Wow, three of us. Raise your hand if you hate change with a passion. Just raise it. Some of you didn't raise, and I'm watching you. So anyway, you like change or you hate change, and nonetheless, you have to what? Embrace it. You have to embrace it. This past year, just like everyone else on the planet, you have had to decide what you will do when things change. The shutdown had happened March 12th. I remember sitting in the office with the staff. Everything shut down. We had went home. It was probably a week or two later. I can't remember exactly. Like most of you, what am I? I'm glued to the TV. And I don't remember, but I think I was yelling at it. Right? I'm yelling and things are going on. And everything that was changing around me caused me to have negative change. My wife so lovingly and graciously looked at me and said, you have two options. You can shut that off or you can leave. So I made the wise call and I shut the TV off like some of you had to do. You have to embrace change. If you're a middle schooler, I don't know what to tell you. You're in a life of change and I don't know when that will end. High school, you have to embrace change. And for a lot of you in college years, you're looking for direction, whether you're married, with kids, without of kids, with, without, of, without kids, you have to embrace change. A lot of times without the choice of deciding what you will do with the change. 
I remember when my brother and I decided to go to college. We went the same year. Daniel, you'll remember this. As we're leaving, mom and dad, they were so sad. They were crying. I was like, yeah, we're great. Like, I would be crying too. Like, we're leaving. And as we're leaving, for the first three weeks, I think they called us on the hour, every hour. How's it going? You know, they're crying because we're leaving. Well, eventually, what? The phone call stopped. And they actually started to enjoy it. Now they were crying because we were coming home and it wasn't a rejoicing crying. It was, you should find somewhere to live, cry. Right? Parents, maybe you would remember that type of season. Well, here here is what is true for all of us. Some things need to change. Some things should never change. While some things inevitably change. Whether we like it or not, some things in our life need to change. A lot of times we'll look at things in culture or in our own lives and we'll say, eh, that needs to change. Some things we will look at and say, that should never change. That is a good thing. This needs to stay the same. While some things are out of our control and we would say, inevitably, without my choice, that changed. Sometimes it's for good and sometimes it's not so good. It's Things that you have embraced. A lot of times, if you're in any type of management or leadership anywhere, you maybe have heard this phrase or you'll experience this phrase, that if you make a change and nobody complains to you, you made a change that doesn't really matter, right? When you change something, even if it is for good in your family, in your workplace, in church world, no matter what, if you move a chair, people are fired up. Right? You would experience that. You would understand that. And if you change family traditions, you're in big trouble. You don't change certain things. Well, today, what we're going to talk about in Psalm 119, verses 112 to 114, is about embracing change. And the writer of this psalm is David. And as he is writing this psalm, he is talking about himself and talking to himself. How many in this room do you talk to yourself? You are an av- oh, you, some of you are a little bit nervous, some of you admit it. My wife catches me talking to myself, and it's actually kind of hilarious. She asked me the other day, are you laughing at yourself? I was like, I was telling myself a joke. It was awesome. It was so funny. Uh, so anyway, you'll talk to yourself, and when you talk to yourself, you have to decide if you will tell someone else or how you will express that conversation. So there are a few things. Before I jump into Psalm 119, A few things that should never change or don't change. It says in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm, Yeah, there was one pastor friend of mine last year, he would always say, New Year, what? Same Jesus. Yeah, that's what we need. You want the same Jesus. Why? Because as you change, culture changes, you need, whether you realize it or not, Jesus to be the same. That you can come to him that he will minister to you and he will help you. And the second thing that should never change is Psalm 119.89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That God's word would remain the same. That outside of those two things, we really don't have much control over what will change outside of us. That as Christians or people, Jesus remains the same and God's word should remain the same. And a lot of times, People don't like change or you don't like change because you are nervous if something changes that that will change. 
that maybe this will become different or people will get closer and closer to something that shouldn't be. And as Christians, we should be constantly changing in a way to reach people far from God. We should be constantly making adjustments and looking to what we can change, but we never change God's word. That Jesus is the same. Those things are what we have to hold on to. And if you've had any conversation with your mom or your dad at any age or you've thought through in your own head, you know there are things that you can control. There are things inside of you that you can control. Some of you would say, I can control my spouse. I'm really good at it. I got their schedule. We got a shared calendar. I got that. You know, you try to control other people. We naturally do. But there, are, there is something about in this psalm where David says, I can control three things, three things only in my life. And he's going to share with us what those are. Number one, what I can't afford to change or what I have control over is my heart to obey. He says in verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Incline. What does that mean? It means he wishes He hopes, he dreams, I incline, I want my heart to perform your statutes, God. I want to obey. Have you ever not wanted to obey God? Have you ever not wanted something to be true about you? Like the part about you that if we knew, we'd be a little bit nervous you're here. The part about you when you're kind of like, even that aspect of you, There are things about you that you don't like that are true. There are maybe thoughts you have, actions you've done, and things that are about you that you would say, I wish that wasn't a part of me. You see, this psalm talks about desires here, and truly desires of the heart. There are things that are true about your heart and true about my heart. My heart wants to be affirmed. It wants to feel significant. It wants to have longing. It wants to have security or certainty in something, please. It wants to feel these things. And David says, I incline, I hope, I dream that my heart will obey God. And why is that his dream? Or why is that what he inclines or wants from himself? Because when your obedience is in God or my obedience is in God, It is the safest place to be. And when we talk about heart and we talk about obedience, naturally, naturally, about half of you, maybe more, will say, all right, what do I got to do? Give me the five steps of obedience right now and I will do them all today. You naturally say, okay, what about obedience? But here's what is true about God. God needs your heart before your obedience. Because for us, we say, if I do, if I perform, if I incline, if I'm a good person, if I be better, do better, be smarter, no more, don't mess up this way, God is finally happy with me. When really God says, I need your heart, the Bible says that through faith, Christ would dwell in your heart. That man looks on the outward appearance. We look at how tall, how, how smart, how fat, how skinny, what cut. We look at the outward appearance, outward appearance, and God looks at the heart, which is a good thing, but also a bad thing. It's an alarming thing for us. 
and it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. God needs your heart before your obedience because if we give him our obedience before our heart, naturally, there's no heart change that is able to be done. And yes, God would prefer obedience as well. He kind of wants both, right? Cut off your right hand and cause you to sin. Take out your right eye. You're like, ah, hand, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, that he wants you to obey. But he needs your heart first. What I can't afford to change, and hopefully what you can't afford to change, is my heart to obey. Number two, what I can't afford to change, my mind for God's word. Psalm 119, verse 113 I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. So when you are talking about yourself, a little, little bit of a debate here in this passage. Is he talking about Saul, who he's going against? Is he talking about himself? I believe he's almost fighting or arguing with himself. That double-mindedness, and you would say, well, what is double-mindedness? Clearly defined would be this. That you would believe that God loves you that he is for you, that he cares for you, that he is faithful. But when you go through a tough season, he's not faithful to me. God is good, but he is not good to me. That circumstances would change or we would be double-minded in our thinking. Um, It says in James 1, which many of you are flipping to, thinking of right now, you're like, James 1, 5 to 8. It says that a double-minded person is unstable in what? All his ways. You are like a wave of the sea. One minute you're over here, next minute you're over here. You are emotionally driven. Now, how many emotionally driven people we got today? Just, again, let's just participate. Throw it up. You're with me. All right, it's eight of us. I like it. Okay, yeah. I am emotionally driven. I mean, in one day, the amount of emotions I feel, I can't even categorize. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm laughing. I want to tell jokes. I want to cry. I don't know what emotions I'm feeling. So he says he hates how he is double-minded. Why? Because double-mindedness make us vulnerable to ourselves. My thoughts become reality. What I think is true. God, you are good, but you are not good to me. God, you are loving, but you don't love me. Double-mindedness, but I love your law. Why does he love the law? Why does he love what he's saying, God's word? Because it is sure. It is firm. It is fixed. It doesn't change. So I'm able to come to God's word and find something that is not emotionally driven, that God can speak to me. And I can say, despite what I feel, I can pray with David in Psalm 119, verse 70. Though you slay me, You are good. It is good for me to be afflicted. You can look at what God is doing and say, that is sure. Despite a changing world, my mind for God's word cannot change. And in Jeremiah 4, 14, it says this, Wash your hearts from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Maybe you've experienced wicked thoughts or things that you shouldn't be thinking. They become your home. It just becomes reality that things that you believe about yourself that you wouldn't even want to tell someone or what you think God thinks about you or what you think someone else thinks about you, how long shall wicked thoughts lodge within you? What would God have to do? How long? 
And then in 1 Kings 18.21, which is one of my favorite Old Testament passages, Elijah is going against the prophets of Baal, 450 of these prophets. They show up. There's about to be like a sweet movie scene, action scene. The fire's coming down uh, on the altar. And right before, Elijah said to them, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So if you're gonna, he says, make up your mind. Don't be double-minded. If you're going to believe in God's word and submit to it, do that. If you're not, then, don't even, then, then stop. Quit lying to yourself. And he is not saying, not giving grace, that if you're back and forth, but David is saying, man, I hate this part about me. I hate being double-minded, but I love God's law. Now, a question I've had to ask myself is, how am I supposed to hate something that I don't hate? Or how am I, on the flip side, how am I supposed to love something that I don't love? Because aren't there things in your life that you don't hate, but you probably should? Maybe you'd say it with your mouth, or maybe you'd say you'd hate this thing, or hate this person, and you shouldn't hate it, or maybe you do, or vice versa. But how? How? It says, I love your law, and I'll read here in a second. It also says, I hope in your word, because in God's word, when I find something that I should hate that I don't hate, that I should love something, and I don't really love it yet. David says in Psalm 42, he's almost yelling at himself. You ever done that? No, never. You guys are like, this guy's nuts. He's always yelling at himself. Why are you mad at yourself, man? He's yelling at himself in Psalm 42. He says, put your hope in God. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your faith in God. Put your hope in God. Believe in God. So when I hate something, or if I don't hate something I should, I have to look back to God's word and say, this is certainty. This is sure. And often, often, when God changes your desires, they are small, unseen things done for a long period of time. It's never like you're going to wake up one day and just read your Bible and naturally like, oh my gosh, I love the Bible. That's amazing. No, it's going to be day one, Yeah, I don't know. Day two, I better text and ask a question. I have no idea what that verse means. Day three, eh. Day four, I missed. Day five, got the verse of the day. Got it. Day six, I still don't love it. It's small, unseen things done for a long period of time when God changes your desires. In the same way where some of you would say you got somewhere and you didn't want where you didn't want to be, it takes time to get somewhere where you do want to be. Small and unseen things. And number three, what I can't afford to change and hopefully you can't afford to change is my hiding place in God. You are, David says, my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. You are my hiding place and my shield. So David, there's a a ton of commentaries, if you're into that stuff, that you can read that David, when he would fight Saul or Saul would come back at him, or in 1 Samuel 22, this guy named Adullam that would come after him, what would David do? He would run off into a cave and he would hide. He would hide from that situation, whether right or wrong, he would hide instead of going into battle. And in those moments, God would minister to him, he would write psalms in those caves, they believe, and then he would come out. And in those moments, then he would fight again. But he is saying, God, you are my hiding place. You are my shield. You are what I trust in. Now, many of us, many of us, we will hide certain things. There are certain things in your life 
that you will hide. Maybe you hide from something. You hide from someone, like at church, right? You're like, if I see them, I will run, like you run. You see certain family members at Thanksgiving or Christmas, and you're hiding. Certain things you hide from. And when we hide, a lot of times, it's not even a bad thing that we do. It could be a good thing. And there are things that I have hidden from in my life or things that I have hidden something from. When I was uh, 16 years old, I was working for dad. Uh, not, uh, nothing super dramatic at the time. There was one, well, this was the one guy I was 16, came uh, to work after school. We got in an argument and a fight. And as we got in the fight, um, he, on the spot, quit. So he quit. I was like, see ya. Dad calls me, I'm at home, and as he had called me, uh, he, he fired me. I was like, all right. Um, in that moment, I'll never forget. And I'm sharing this story, not that you think I'm crazy, but just to let you know, like, I'm right there with you. Uh, I, Dad, on the phone, hey, you can find a job somewhere else. <laughs> okay. Uh, hung up the phone, and I walked past my door, and as I was walking past my door, not even, and it was one of those things, you know, you did, but you didn't really think about, you know what I'm talking about? You just did it, and afterwards, you're like, shouldn't have done that. I grabbed the door. There was, two, you know, the, the closet right here, the door out right here, and I grabbed, bam, head right in the wall. Felt good. You know, just felt better about life right then. Uh, 16, so, uh, you know, story goes on. I left. You know, I come, you know, I'd, I had to come home. That's where I live. So anyway, Dad and I, we hashed it out. No big deal. Uh, you know, I had to apply. To, no, he, he brought me back in the fold. Prodigal son, home, got to work at the shop. But anyway, um, in that moment, I remember going back up, and my mom had put a plaque over the hole. Like a foot, like a participation trophy plaque. You know what I'm talking about? Like played football five years, bam, right there. And it hid uh, the act that I did in putting a hole in the wall. And it still is there to this day. If you go to my parents' house, it is right there, plaque over top of the hole. When you and I hide from God in certain things, it looks like that. It's very foolish. It's like um, this. And for some of you, this is very simple. But uh, if you're playing hide and seek with kids, and they're doing one of these. And they're like, find me. And they're like, I don't know if they'll see me. And you're right now thinking, this is really weird. This is dumb. And why are we doing this? Because when we hide in something besides God, this is what it looks like. I should preach here the rest of the time. You may, <laughs> uh, I get up, everyone's gone. They're just out. Uh, no, <laughs> when God is your hiding place, here's what it looks like. You go to God and find safety in him. And for a lot of you, your hiding place could look very different. It's not even a bad thing usually, your hiding place. It's when you feel fear, you feel anxiety, you feel anger, you feel frustration, and you go to it. For some of you, it would be work. You'll work as a hiding place or a safety net for, your, for, for where you need to go to not feel that way anymore. For some of you, it would be simply your phone. Next thing you know, you're watching YouTube videos. It's 1 a.m. You don't even know how it got to be 1 a.m., but it is, and you got to go to bed. you got to be up at 5. Or for some of you, it's maybe Netflix or shows or whatever it may be. I, would like to, I was going to bring a whiteboard and do a participation thing, but I can't spell, so it gets really weird. Uh, but you go to certain things that you hide in. And they're not even bad. Maybe it's working out. It's certain people that you would go to. And the only time it becomes a problem, the only time, 
is when God needs to do work on your heart and you can't allow him because you've hid in something else that would fix your emotions temporarily. So who or what has been your hiding place this year? It can't be busyness because that got stripped. It can't even be, I mean, we could go through the list. It could be anything for you that's not even bad, but it turns into bad. It turned the, the person that you go to instead of going to God. And David, David says, you are my hiding place. You are my shield. And why, why on earth would we need a hiding place and a shield in God? It says in Ephesians 6, 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That the devil himself will send lies to you, he'll feed them to you, you'll be tempted to believe, you'll be tempted to doubt that God can't use you anymore, that he's kind of frustrated with you, that you're kind of annoying, just keep calling all the time, and when you do, it's when you're in the worst situation that you would doubt in all your circumstances, and you have no shield. That your shield is rather the things that you would run to. And Paul is saying in Ephesians 6, take up the shield of faith that you can discern what is from the devil and what is from my thoughts and what is from God. Because if I try to fight a battle on my own with my own words, it's like going into battle with a Nerf gun. Nerf gun? My nephews always fight with these Nerf guns. I was going to bring one today, and you know, whatever, I kind of got carried away. So anyway, you have these Nerf guns. If you bring that into battle and you're like, let's do this, you die. Like on the spot, bam, done. But by unknowingly, we bring our own thoughts and emotions into our world, not running to God. And it says in Psalm 84, 11, God is a shield. He is a protector. He is secure. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That if you choose to follow God, that if you choose to let his words be more authoritative than your your words, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And in Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We talked about for a second that God looks at the heart, and when he looks at the heart, he sees everything. Everything is exposed to him, and everything is clear to him. And what he sees is, like it said in Jeremiah 4, he sees wickedness. He sees evil in our thoughts and in our hearts. And despite that, what does he do? He exposes us. God exposes us, because of love. You see, when anything goes bad or down or crossways in my life, naturally what I'll have the temptation to do is hide or find a shield or security in something or someone else besides God. Because I can make stuff up and they can't see it. I can pretend it's either bigger of a, I can exaggerate it or make it seem smaller than it actually is. But with God, he sees everything. And this is what is cool when he sees everything. He is not scared or intimidated by all your thoughts and your hearts. He runs to and initiates. 
In Genesis 4, really, we could use tons and tons of stories, but Cain just kills his brother Abel and says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You have driven me away, and from your face I shall be hidden. So commits this great evil act. He kills his brother. His natural response is what? To run from, to hide, to run away from God, which is just like we do every single day. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. I don't even want a home anymore. I want no place to lay my head. I don't want to know the people I used to know. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to look at them. I don't want to have to run into them at the gas station. I would rather be a wanderer and be unknown. Whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said what? Not so. That God looks at our messed up hearts and minds and situations and he intervenes says in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve commit this sin, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? You see, um, Adam and Eve would know that God knows where they are. You would understand intellectually that God knows where you are, that maybe in your mind that he understands where you are and how you go about life and what it looks like but you don't necessarily hear him calling out to you. You don't feel him trying to minister to you. And you believe that God is irrelevant, that he is up in the sky. He turned the key. He took a step back and he said, figure it out. I believe that God does this kind of stuff in the Bible so that you would know he calls, he is looking, and he initiates despite, despite what is going on. Despite the anxiety I feel, despite the lack of control I feel, that God initiates to me. That he exposes, that he brings us out of our cave, he brings us out of our hiding place to speak to us and to minister to us. That he looks at you. When you try to hide something on the wall and you throw your plaque up and you throw something over top of it and you try to push it down, he says, hey, where are you? I already know. He, he knows. This is what is awesome about God. There's so many things. He knows your issues, and he knows how you got them, and he's cool with it. He knows why you feel a little bit angry sometimes. He knows why you're frustrated with that person a ton. He knows why you can't even have that conversation with the person anymore. He knows that's true. He knows how you got it, and he says, yeah, that's why I'm here. I understand why you can't go through this. I understand you want to hide from this. And God exposes these things. And why is this important in the midst of Psalm 119? Because when you and I, we look at God and maybe we, we would say things like, well, maybe he will change. Maybe my current circumstances will change. Maybe this will change. This person needs to change. You look at, you'd look at certain family members or spouses or but you would say they need to change. Romans 8 would teach us that we need to change. That we would be more and more like Christ. That he would look at us and say, this change was inevitable. It had to happen. It needed to happen. And he speaks to it and says, where are you? In Job 7, Job says to his friends, and I believe he is saying to God, if I sin, what do I do to you? Why have you made me your mark? And why have I become a burden to you? Some of you 
when you're trying to embrace change, you're trying to embrace this year, or maybe you've reached out to people like Job has, or maybe you feel this way toward God. You feel like a burden. You ever felt like a burden to someone? You just called them too many times. You asked them too many questions. You asked them for help too often. It just became you would be annoyed by what you're doing. You would be frustrated. You would put them on do not disturb. You'd block the phone number. You would do something so you'd say, well, that is probably how God feels with me. He's just a little bit annoyed, a little bit frustrated. My questions bother him. And this would be a lie that you and I would believe. God, I am a burden to you. I'm a burden to the people around me. I'm frustrating. People by this age or by this time have this part of their lives figured out. You feel like you're lagging behind a little bit? Come on. I mean, people get married by 24. Married. People have kids by this time. People have this figured out. People have their, you, you fill in the blank. You just feel a little bit annoyed by yourself. When we talked about hating double-mindedness, David says, I hate that I'm double-mindedness. And it's not that we change instantly, that the prayer changes everything about us. It changes our double-mindedness. But it says in Psalm 119, 114, I hope in your word. Because in an ever-changing world and culture that changes so fast, I can't even put my finger on it. Change is so quick, can't even follow where this is running. God, I hope in something that is sure, something that is ever-present, something that is constant. And again, the lie that you and I would believe is that God's love changes. But God's love has never nor will ever change. It just can't. It's outside of his character. He doesn't possess the thought. He doesn't possess the ability to produce change. That he gives you grace and truth. He gives you help in a time of need. That he, his love is persistent, even on days that you don't feel like it at all. He ministers to us. And it says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That we find help in God, that we find grace, that we find love. I shared this on Christmas Eve in here, but I would like to share it again. If I don't like to repeat stories, but I will. I feel like it's a different crowd of some sense. Um, it was Monday, or it was last week. Um, friend had contacted me, said, hey, somebody is about uh, to die, and they would like a pastor to come and like pray a blessing over them. I was like, that's, that's, that's what I do. I pray over dead people about to die. I would like to do that. So uh, didn't know the person. person. They didn't know the person. You know, I get this random phone number, random address. So I call. It's Michelle. Hi, Michelle. I heard you're in a tight spot. Um, she said, yes, my husband uh, got diagnosed with cancer a year ago, and they just gave him two to four weeks to live. Nothing. I mean, he's done. So, would you come and visit us? Sure. Um, went on Monday at around 2 o'clock. As I was getting closer, one of those locations you're getting to where you're like, probably should have brought someone. Right? Should have had Bruce or something. I mean, I should have had someone. Just like, just, you know what I mean. You don't, I don't know. So, anyway, I pull in and said a few prayers. And I said, God, I don't know why I'm here. I know what I need to do. But I just ask that you would be with me and you would help me. 
So I sat down with this man named John. He's 51 years old and his wife. And he told me the story of his life, asking me questions. Never been to church. This guy's never read a Bible. Didn't know anything about it. Asking question after question after question. And you know why I'm there. I said, John, here's the gospel. And this is what God has done for you in Christ. That this time of year around Christmas, we celebrate that God is with us, that he's with you, that Jesus died for you. And I explained the gospel to him that it is so simple. It's simple, more simple than you would ever make it, that you need to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness. And he looked at me and his wife looked at me, tears running down his face. And he said, I don't want fire insurance, Mike. I don't need to punch my ticket. I need real peace. And if that is what you were talking about, that is what I want. I about jumped out of the house. I was so excited. I said, that's what we got. Like, peace. So I explained to him, peace, tears running down his face. And I said, would you like to make that decision right now? And he paused. It felt like 10 minutes. It was probably a minute. He said, I need to think. I'm like, you know, locked down. I'm like, think, keep thinking. Like, I'm like praying. And he said, we would like to make that decision to accept Christ as our Savior. John, 51 years old, Michelle, his wife, accepted Christ on Monday. She had contacted me a few days ago. Hey, we would like to get him baptized. You guys do that kind of stuff all the time. Let's get him in, water deep enough, right? And come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. The reason I bring this up is because a lot of times we think we need to come once we get our stuff together. Once you stop doing X, Y, and Z. Once you stop sneaking around, once you stop doing this, once you stop talking to that guy, once you stop talking to her, once you finally stop doing that, I can't tell you how many people would say, once I clean up a little bit, then I'm ready. Once I make some changes, then God will be happy that I'm coming like this. And that is the furthest thing, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That God takes you as you are and he changes your heart. That my heart, I cannot change. My mind, I cannot change on my own. That God takes me as I am. And while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And that, that is the type of change we are about. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for Psalm 119 and for David. And God, just how he cares for us, how he writes really what we're feeling half the time. And God, would you help myself to never change my heart to obey, my mind for your word, and my hiding place in you. God, would we look to you as we are and that you would change us. God, that we would not seek to change ourselves or look within or think what we can do or really to become bigger and better people. God, would you minister to us and would we embrace, embrace that this world is ever-changing, that people are ever-changing, but I can control my heart to obey, my mind for your word, and my hiding place in you. Would that be our prayer? In Jesus' name, amen.